Hello and welcome to the Psych Summaries podcast. My name is Hannah and I will be having conversations with clinicians, academics and experts that have applications to the field of psychology and mental health. They have many years of experience, meaning they are trusted voices in niche subjects. But I invite you to consume the content with a critical perspective, since a one-size-fits-all approach rarely applies to mental health. I hope you learn something and enjoy listening. Today I'm joined by the lovely Emma Green to discuss the literature around weight loss, weight stigma, intuitive eating and more. Emma provides such an incredibly balanced outlook and takes a completely non-biased and evidence-based approach to the dietary and fitness movement. So please welcome Emma. Please can we start with an introduction for listeners? Yeah, so yeah, I'm Emma Green. I work as a writer and editor, also as a coach as well, so I do work directly with people. I guess I've always been quite interested in the relationship between mental and physical health. When I was a teenager, I struggled with an eating disorder, and through the recovery of that, became quite interested in the relationship between mental and physical health and how we think about ourselves can affect our behaviour. But also, you know, I'm a bit of a science nerd. Through studying psychology, I became particularly interested in health psychology, which is the study largely of health behaviour specifically. I like doing quite a lot of different things. I really enjoy working with people directly because I think that's important. I'm also really passionate about the science and sharing the science behind weight inclusive approach, which is what I largely do on, on social media. For anyone listening, your page is incredible. It provides such well-rounded summaries of research and probably the fact that you've had that personal experience will really contribute to how amazing your work is. So I would love to expel this big myth to start with. Is a higher body weight causally linked with poorer health? And if it's not, what does this infer about weight loss messaging that is so prevalent in our society? Does that mean it's just totally nonsense? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it would be helpful to outline the kind of three types of studies that generally people use to make arguments both about the relationship between weight and health and the relationship between weight loss and supposedly improving health outcomes. So, broadly speaking, you've got a follow people up and see what happens approach. Sometimes it's called a perspective study. The idea is you're looking forward in time. So you look at people maybe with different BMI categories and see if they get particular health conditions, depending on what you're interested in. You do also sometimes have the opposite, where you have retrospective. So you'll look at people at one point in time that have a health condition, and you'll look at what might have happened up to that point, try and work out why they've got it. You've got sort of cross-sectional study, one point in time. So do you have diabetes? What is your BMI, for example? Literally just snapshot in time. And then what you've got is an intervention study. And this is where the typical weight loss stuff comes in. So we put one group on some kind of diet and or exercise intervention, a control group that don't do that, and we see what happens in terms of health outcomes. Often those are quite short term, so you sometimes get a follow-up of a year if you're lucky. Quite often it's just a few weeks. When you follow people up over a period of time, because people are living in, in the real world, right, there are loads of different factors that can go into things so actually being really conclusive 
about the exact reason that someone gets a health condition is quite difficult because there could be so many different things that might happen to that person in their life. They might have a BMI of a certain degree or whatever and have diabetes, but loads of things could have happened to, to cause that. And equally, someone with the same BMI, for example, who's not got diabetes, right? So it is quite, it's quite difficult to make causal relationships. There are some newer, fancy statistical methods where researchers claim that causal relationships are very likely, but realistically, you can't claim causality in that in that kind of scenario because there are just so many factors, some of which researchers don't always control. So ideally, what you want is you want them to control for participating in health behaviours. So is this a person who's exercising? Is this a person who is eating a nutrient-dense diet? You want to control for social determinants of health. Do they have food insecurity issues? Are, you know, are they experiencing different types of marginalisation and oppression? And you also want to control for weight stigma, which is essentially a range, really, of kind of discrimination and bias faced by people in larger bodies. Because we know that all of those things affect health. And when you take those kinds of things into consideration, you see very little relationship between weight and health. And again, there are some interventions which do show that if a person loses weight, certain health outcomes improve. I will say generally it's more risk factors for the health outcomes that improve. So, for example, cholesterol levels or something compared to, say, a cardiovascular event or something. But the problem is with that, is that these interventions typically involve changes in behaviour. So it's quite difficult to ascertain is it weight loss or is it is it the actual behavior because your control group they've not only not lost weight they've also just not done any of those behaviors and we know that when you do an intervention the focus isn't weight for example like a like every size intervention actually you get improvements in health outcomes even if a person doesn't change weight we also know from these kind of weight loss interventions is that if you look on an individual level the amount of weight lost doesn't correlate with the amount of health improvement, which suggests that it's not necessarily the weight loss that's causing the health outcomes. It's one thing looking overall, oh yes, some people lost weight and there were some improvements in health outcomes, but on an individual level, it doesn't quite work out work out like that. So to answer your question, no, we don't have causal evidence that, that weight causes health outcomes. And in terms of weight loss, certainly there are some people that can lose weight they will see an improvement in health outcomes. You know, generally, that is a small percentage of people, depending on the study you're looking at. 5% at the worst, up to about 20% of people at the best that try and lose weight will be successful. There are also a few issues in terms of even the people who are successful at keeping weight off. If you look a bit more holistically at their health, there are some concerns in terms of particularly their mental well-being. So they typically have quite a kind of hypervigilance around food and weight. So they're eating the same kinds of foods every day. They're doing loads of exercise every day. They're weighing themselves every day. They're doing behaviours that, to be honest, would be potentially diagnosed as disordered in someone that was underweight, quote-unquote, and the BMI, but because they're in a normal weight, they're seen as these success stories. So I think we've got to be quite careful in what we're defining as success and we've got to look I think at health more broadly than and just than just weight. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, someone suffering with cancer, they can be a healthy weight, but their body is is ill. So, I mean, it's absolutely extreme examples. But the point being that we just cannot associate low weight with health. I mean, because totally. I think we also can't assume that a person that loses weight is the same as someone who has always been in a smaller body, because we know that maintaining your weight below the kind of range that it's supposed to be in has negative effects for your health compared to someone that is naturally at that kind of weight. And I think that's that's a problem as well, because that is a bit of an assumption, I think. And again, weight stigma, we know, makes it particularly difficult for in larger bodies so obviously that is positively related to weight so even if a person's quality of life or something is better at a lower weight well if that's the result of bias and discrimination let's address the bias and discrimination right rather than tell the person that they that they have to change because sadly weight stigma is really pervasive unfortunately particularly in healthcare and also fitness settings which is ironic considering they're supposed to be you know areas that are helping people I mean, it's it's strange, isn't it? That's where people seek help and that's where they're getting quite the opposite. So I was wondering, what are some negative physical and mental impacts from restrictive diet? Yeah, sure. So physical kind of stuff first, I guess. When a person loses weight, they typically will think of it as just being fat tissue that they're losing. You also lose a lot of other things in the process, including muscle mass. And also including bone health. Now, the bone health is actually particularly concerning because it's actually very difficult to build back bone density, particularly as you as you get older. And one of the, the difficulties is, is that even if you regain weight after a diet, as the majority of people do, your body doesn't gain in the same way that it lost it, right? So you lose certain proportions of fat, muscle, bone, and that is kind of genetic in terms of how much people lose of each. When you regain weight, you proportionately gain more fat, right? Which means that you gain less muscle mass and less bone density. And there are some quite worrying long-term consequences in terms of bone density, which again, is something you tend to lose as you, as you age. It sort of peaks, you think roughly between the ages of 20 and 30. Then after that, you're trying to just hang on to it <laughs> largely. And obviously dieting is going to interfere with that. I think it's important to note as well with dieting that the consequences are the result of being not having enough energy, not having enough calories coming into your body. It's not necessarily the weight that you're at. So even if you don't lose a lot of weight, that still being on a diet because you're not giving your body enough energy is what is stressful for your, your body. So it almost doesn't really matter what your weight is. You can have those consequences at any time on, on the weight spectrum it's often the more the time that you've actually been on a diet and often for a lot of people it's been off diets for sometimes decades right in terms of mental health so we know that being on a diet increases the risk of going on to develop disordered eating or an eating disorder different types of them which is perhaps unsurprising because typically the things that people tend to do on diets right they're often counting calories tracking things putting things in apps very kind of number focused and things so it is quite likely that it, it can go on to an eating disorder pretty much it's not that all people that go on diets necessarily end up with an eating disorder but pretty much all people that have an eating disorder will have dieted at some point before that so 
you know, that is a big, big risk factor. And we know just generally mood is lower when you when you diet. So if you do have an existing mental health condition like depression or anxiety, it's going to be worsened when you go on a diet because you know your your brain actually uses a lot of your energy. Roughly sixty percent of your energy needs are just your brain, right? So if you're not getting enough energy, particularly not enough things like carbohydrates and also dietary fats has quite a negative effect on your brain's ability to just function normally so your, your you know your mood generally can be worse if you don't have a mental health condition if you do have one it, it will be worse and even just more day-to-day functioning concentration will generally be lower right a lot of people and when they're on a diet they're very very food focused that's a very biological functional thing right your body is trying to do that because back in the day it would be so you go and find food right so you go and hunt or gather for your food right but actually people people now become very fixated on food and then it takes away from the other things they're able to give their time and attention to because if you're thinking about food all the time that does affect how much you're able to give to your work or just your hobbies or your time with your friends and family and and things like that which does obviously have an effect on your well-being and and quality of life as well yeah well I mean our bodies are so smart aren't they it's mm. it's amazing hearing that your brain uses 60% of your energy. Equally, hearing you say that your body might store fat first when you're putting that weight back on. Your body is trying to protect you ultimately, yeah. isn't it? It's trying to reserve its stores. I think it puts it into perspective, really, doesn't it? You know, it's it's all good and well calorie counting. And obviously, this is not to demonize people doing it, because it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, we get we get fed this all the time. But ultimately, it's not, it's not necessary. I mean, if you think of it on a physical level, where I need to nourish my brain and my muscles and things like that, then it's you come from a different perspective. So there's a couple of things I'd specifically actually like to ask. I was wondering, do our eating habits change around our menstrual cycle and is does the same happen at all to an extent with with males I mean I know that they don't necessarily have such a hormonal change throughout the month but is there anything in that also people with uteruses because obviously men and non-binary people also have, have periods on that point the the research largely is in cis women so we, we don't have as much information about other groups uh, there are, yeah, some mixed results. So there are differences. Sometimes people find in terms of appetite. I think a lot of people might find this anecdotally, particularly around the time that they tend to have their period and often the week or so before, they will have more of an appetite. And we also see a change in cravings as well. So people often want more sugary things and slightly more fatty things. So stuff like chocolate, right? Ticks both boxes, ice cream, things like that. In terms of that actually affecting food intake, we actually don't see a massive effect there so I'm not sure whether that's because people aren't giving into these cravings and again that goes back to maybe some of the messages that we get right people think it's a bad food or whatever they're concerned about gaining weight and things like that or it or perhaps the cravings aren't strong enough that actually then affects them you know sometimes you might have a craving and when you go to have it you're like well, actually I'm, I'm over it now <laughs> right I, you know it could also be that it's just so transient so we don't we don't see a, a kind of a massive effect I mean slightly more sometimes if people have an existing mental health condition or they have something like seasonal infective disorder and things like that they can just have slightly more extreme cycles and also if people have a specific menstrual disorder as well sometimes there can be more more effects there but generally not not a massive not a massive effect yeah, with men, typically it will be within a day. 
there's a cycle. So like testosterone levels will peak at the beginning of the day and then we'll kind of go down towards the end of the day. So obviously that's a much shorter cycle, right? There, there might be some seasonal changes. We're not quite sure if there are differences between like say summer and winter and things like that. To be honest, the research hasn't really shown a massive effect in terms of eating behavior specifically. In terms of the research on it, it's more been around exercise and things like that and you know, testosterone levels and typically time to time exercise with that because typically if you have a higher testosterone levels, you'll feel more like energized, stronger, etc. But yeah, food food intake, we don't really know. Right. That's so interesting because, I mean, as you say, anecdotally, so many people refer to this, don't they? You just you hear it in common discussions. So what about things like sleep? Because I know sleep is so important for our health, but does that impact, i.e. if we have less sleep or if we sleep too much? Is there any research on whether that impacts our eating habits, either short term or long long term? Yeah, I mean, it's much more on the kind of short term aspect. We know in general, if you don't get enough sleep, you tend to eat more, which again is a kind of biological thing. Everybody's like, oh, okay, might be in danger, let's stock up. From an evolutionary perspective, if you weren't sleeping that much, that might be because you were watching out for predators, right? So, so your body's like, right, okay, let's make the most of this. So we do see that kind of effect. So I think it does slightly impair your ability to tune into what your body wants. Again, although we know that people eat more, we also don't necessarily know whether these people that they're studying, are they eating enough to start with? You know, you've got to be careful, I think, when you talk about people eating more. It's not necessarily a bad thing, quote-unquote. But we do tend to know that people's food choices as well tend to be the less nutrient-dense foods. So the relationship kind of goes in both directions, in a way, because equally, if you aren't eating nutrient-dense foods, and, you know, I should say not just for kind of choice reasons, but if you don't have access to them, right? I mean, I think, you know, it's a a privilege to be able to choose what, what you eat and to have enough food etc we know that that can also then impair your, your sleep as well so the two do kind of go go hand in hand and the other thing to note as well is your body just isn't as good at processing particularly things like carbohydrates if you haven't slept enough so you know yeah like you say sleep is hugely important for health feeling, feeling good generally making choices that feel good for you and your body actually dealing with them well sleep is really important and thank you for touching on that point I mean people of lower socioeconomic status are disproportionately affected in every level of their health as you say it's a privilege to even have the time have the money to think about this and there's so many people that don't have the education to know about what's good for them and don't have the money don't have the time they're working all the time and they just need to feed their kids with something so it's there's so much I mean this is a whole other topic but I think thank you so much for for actually acknowledging that because it's very very adds a complexity to it I know that you're work looks at a weight neutral approach and I was wondering if you could explain what you mean by intuitive eating. Yeah sure so I like to think of like weight neutral as kind of like an umbrella sort of term for a range of approaches that essentially the focus is no longer on weight so focus then with still on health behaviors and also like we touched on improving access as well to healthcare and you know improving people's ability to actually 
engage in these, these kinds of behaviours as well. The kind of social justice element, I think, is equally important there. Intuitive eating is kind of one, one of the kind of frameworks that falls within a sort of weight neutral approach. Intuitive eating has 10 principles, and these were actually defined all the way back in 1995 by Evelyn Tribley and Elise Resch. It's about tuning into what feels good for your body in terms of food, but also in terms of movement, you know, exercise, and tuning out of all the external messages that we get about how our body should look, what foods are good or bad, how we should exercise, the focus of exercise, so it being on actually what, what do you enjoy, what makes you feel you know energized and and things like that rather than what burns the most calories or makes your body look a particular way it sounds quite simple but actually when you get into it it can be quite tricky because often we do have these messages and things that we've just accepted and not not necessarily consciously because we often get them from sadly quite a young age particularly women and sometimes it does take quite a lot to unpack that and then oh, actually, if I don't have any of these food rules and things, what does eating look like for me? There's loads of studies now on intuitive eating, which is really exciting, is an evidence-based approach. They show improvements in psychological health, so just well-being and things like that. And also just in terms of improving people's relationship with their bodies. So body appreciation and things like that is, is higher. And there's also some stuff on what's called positive embodiment, internal sense of feeling integrated you just feel a bit more more connected are also some relationships between intuitive eating and disordered eating we don't quite know the relationship there so it looks as though intuitive eating might be protective against eating disorders it also might be the case that as people recover from them they naturally become better intuitive eaters as well so and again, it might might be a little bit of both, but there are some really positive indications there. And I hope that eventually it would be integrated into eating disorder treatment, whereas at the moment it's not. It's still largely weight focused and sometimes even the food nutrition stuff is still quite limited. I mean, I talk about my own experience, I mean, it's obviously quite a few years ago now, but the you know nutrition aspect was I saw a dietitian, he had one appointment. You got our NHS leaflet, which had a picture of the Eat Well plate on it. And there's definitely more, more that more that could be done. And I think intuitive eating would hopefully help people just feel more confident in making their own food decisions. They've you know come from a history of not doing that, and and just realise that you know nutrition looks so different for, for different people. Yes, we know that we all need fruit and veg and a mix of you know protein, carbs, fats, etc. But Actual proportions are different and everyone has different preferences and you know, food is also just so much more than fuel right the way we connect with others it's you know often really linked to people's cultural heritage and, and things like that and I think we want to bring all of that into it right so that food is something that we can really enjoy and nourishes us mentally and physically. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I've seen recently there's a lot, I mean, this is specifically in America, but there's a lot of research into the microbiome and actually how mm. some people, we are all so unique, our guts are unique. So we, not only do we have different preferences, cultures and friendships and different factors impacting that, but also our biology. We have mm. a preference, we react certain ways to certain food um, and just on that point are we would that be done with a practitioner or can people do that on their own I mean I know you say it's not quite yet in clinical practice but what what's the future of that research 
Yeah, so I mean, I will say Anjudo is being taught now in some universities, which is great. I think largely only in America, but hopefully it will expand a bit more broadly. If a person has access, I would recommend seeing a certified intuitive eating counsellor. I'm actually not one of them, although I'm a big fan of intuitive eating. Um, and a lot of my clients that I work with will do like there's an intuitive eating workbook that kind of takes you through the 10 principles and guides you through them. They'll often do that as a work task almost in between in between our sessions. An intuitive eating counsellor is great if you can. There'll be really a registered nutritionist or a registered dietitian. So they go on to some of the nuances and things like that. And particularly if you have any existing health conditions, they can sort of do some more more work around that. We, we do need a bit more research, particularly in terms of intuitive eating, if you have something like diabetes, for example, or other chronic conditions. But again, dietitians are much better if you, you know, if you have one of those conditions at knowing how to make it work for you. But people can fit themselves as well. Like I mentioned, the workbook is, I think, great if people do. The books themselves are great. I mean, the fourth edition of Intuitive Eating is a really packed book, loads of research and stuff. But I think the workbook's great because it allows you to sort of reflect on some of these ideas and, and look at how it might show up for you. I think even if you think you're in a good place with food, I think there's always more we can do to improve our relationship because Again, of all the messages that we get from the outside, I think it's always good to just continually emphasise we do have the skills and knowledge and things within us to to make decisions around food that feel good. And to be really self-compassionate as well with ourselves, right? We might eat a meal that's not great. Okay, great. We can learn from that. We figure out, okay, was it the food or was it something else or, or whatever? And you can always learn more and yeah because you might actually notice maybe that meal wasn't good but then you might start thinking well actually the only reason I ate that meal was because I had an argument with my boyfriend or my friend you know you can start actually looking at your relationship to food more holistically rather than just thinking about the you know nutrients in nutrients out I mean we're all human we all and you enjoy you know fish and chips Mm. probably wouldn't be defined as a health food but it's an enjoyable one and if you're having it with your friends then there might be positive factors that come from that that are outweighing anyway the nutrient Mm. density of of the food I'm really glad that you've also identified factors such as diabetes because if if you have an underlying health condition or if you're worried that you do, then obviously these things you need to do with a practitioner. But I think that it's yeah. definitely worth, you know, getting excited about it. I mean, everyone has a relationship to food and so mm. become inquisitive about it. So I'm really aware of the time, but I just wanted to ask you one more question. And that's yeah, of course. I've seen in your work that you talk about positive addiction. So I was mm. wondering, could we talk about how exercise comes into this and then whether intuitive eating might become a positive addiction yeah so the term positive addiction it was coined by William Glasser I don't love the term positive addiction to be honest and if you look at the six principles that he used I think they all sound great on paper right it's things like you know an activity that brings you joy that's non-competitive that's easy to do where you feel a sense of improvement all of these kinds of things now to me a passion right which is is great I think you know everyone should have one and if you haven't found one looking right I think that's that's wonderful problem I have a little bit is when you talk about it as an addiction I think then you can make it more difficult to identify when something's crossed over into being unhealthy 
Because I think you can think of like positive addiction, for example, running, let's say that, for example, and that might be really healthy thing for them there might be a way that they can relieve stress you know I think a lot of people have taken up during the pandemic and, and things like that which is you know wonderful equally exercise addiction is the real thing and has a lot of implications physically and mentally so I, I do have a, some concerns if we define things as a, as a positive addiction how, how do you then categorize when it's crossed over into something that isn't serving you in a healthy way so I, I love the idea of these six concepts, but I think I'd almost prefer that it was called passion rather than <laughs> rather than addiction. Um, because if we look at generally a clinical definition of addiction, it's where a behavior has consumed so much of your life that you can no longer function normally today. And that is an issue that you obviously want to then seek treatment for. And again, typically think of addiction as kind of drugs, alcohol and things like that. But exercise addiction absolutely is real and can happen to people actually at all different levels so we know it happens in professional athletes but equally it can happen in recreational athletes as well it's not something that's confined to a particular group we don't know I will say with exercise addiction and how distinct it is from eating disorders so we don't know whether is it just a symptom of, of eating disorders it's rare that people experiencing exercise addiction don't have any symptoms of disordered eating or an eating disorder but again are they separate but related or are they essentially the same thing we're still kind of unpacking that in in the literature but I think it is important to acknowledge that even if something is health promoting it can still be negative if it then comes to consume a lot of your time and energy and is something that causes you anxiety and you know perhaps guilt if you're not able to do it that's when advise going to seek help and you know, from, a, from a psychologist and ideally multidisciplinary healthcare team to kind of work on to work on that do you think mm. that intuitive eating could lead into that it's an interesting point because i think you know no one largely comes to intuitive eating first right people come to intuitive eating when they've done all the diets they're fed up right and they want something else i mean i hope that changes i'd love if you know we're all born intuitive eaters that'd so be wonderful if diets weren't the Know, the thing that people turn to first but typically they do I think it's actually quite easy to turn intuitive eating into a diet if you come from that mindset because if you come from a place where things are good or bad you know you're on or you're off the wagon on track off track you know th- these kinds of things I think it can be easy to think, think of intuitive eating like that and I think also intuitive eating sometimes just get boiled down to eating when you're hungry stopping when you're full and those are two of the 10 principles. There's a lot more to intuitive eating than, than that. And I think if you then see it as like, oh, I can never eat when I'm, I'm not hungry and I can never eat past fullness. Well, that's not really that's not really intuitive eating. And that, that is then a diet, isn't it? If you're only allowing yourself, you, know, you can't eat cake because you're not hungry at a wedding or something. So so I, I, I think there are, you do want to be careful with, with intuitive eating. But I think if you're working with someone particularly, that can help and I think the way the principles are laid out also help with that because the first principle of intuitive eating is ditch the diet mentality that's all about getting rid of all these kind of external messages and the the tenth principle is gentle nutrition and that's when you're bringing in you know more ideas about what feels good for you including perhaps more nutrient-dense foods if that's something that you want to work on you have to have almost really gone through all these steps really to get to a place where you can make those choices 
from a place of what feels good for my body, not what good or bad or or anything like that. So, so it's definitely, I think, possible for it to become a negative. I think if you work through it slowly, with each principle, ideally in order, I know some people do it in a different order, but I think it works well if you do do it in that order. It, it helps to prevent prevent that, I think. I do know that, again, you know, I touched on it a bit with eating disorder and recovery that, you know, some some of the other principles, not so much the hunger and fullness because they can be impaired if you have an eating disorder, but those other principles can be brought in you know, earlier on in the process in terms of learning more about, about your body and, and what what does feel good and getting rid of these, these external messages. Again, we still need more research on intuitive eating, but at the moment, there isn't any research indicating that it has any negative effects. Ultimately, everything is going to have potential to go to an extreme, aren't you? Just as healthy eating can be an extreme if you eat four lots of cauliflower. I mean, it's that's not healthy. Yeah. As with yeah. everything yeah. in moderation yeah. um, and hopefully totally. with, the, with a professional. So thank you so much for answering You're all so of the welcome. questions. I've loved learning about this topic. I will link your Instagram handle in the information. Is there anywhere else that people can read about your work or is Instagram the best place to go? Yeah, Instagram's the best place. I do, if you click the like link in my bio, I do also have a link to articles that I've written. So I've written a few things about intuitive eating, about eating disorders, weight stigma and things. So yeah, people can, can read those there. But yeah, Instagram's the place where I'm most active. So yeah, I'd love if people could come and join me on there. And I, you know, if there's particular things you want to hear more about, I'm more than happy for people to let me know. And I will try and I try and do that I do try and be responsive to the things that that people want to um want to hear about so yeah Instagram's definitely a place to go and I mean your posts are so packed full of information I mean every image has about eight slides with nine ten twenty pieces of research in and I just think that's incredible I mean that's unheard of I think on social media so yeah anyone listening go follow thank you so much for taking the time today I'm really appreciative so welcome thank you for having me thanks for listening to today's conversation with Emma Green if you would like to learn more about the evidence base of anything related to intuitive eating or other topics discussed, you can follow her work on Instagram at Emma Green PhD. If you did enjoy the episode and want to keep up with Psych Summaries, please do subscribe and follow the account at Psych Summaries on Instagram. I'll see you next time.